Tonight, the Fed makes its big decision about interest rates. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovac, along with Steve Ruby. Hey, you know, Steve, for the past year, all eyes have been on the Fed on the days they announce whether they raise interest rates. But earlier today, this time around, it was pretty hard to predict what they were going to do because of all the turmoil in the banking industry. The bottom, as a matter of fact, uh, people were talking about the Fed might even pause and not uh, raise interest rates at all. No big surprises today from the Fed. Yeah, prior to some of the issues that we've experienced in banks in the last couple of weeks, uh, there, there was potential talk of a half point. I heard a half point, yeah. I, I did exactly. hear a half point. And yeah. then as soon as that happens, they, they pulled back a little bit. So what you said, no surprise. I, I was expecting 25 basis points, and that's exactly what we got today. Yeah, 25 basis points is a quarter of a percent. Surprise to no one. They, I, I think, Steve, that they had to raise rates because inflation, is it's not gone. No, but the, the reason that the Federal Reserve backed off of, you know, quarter, possibly half a percent increase is this banking crisis. I mean, this is a big deal and it's not that inflation has gone away. But keep in mind, one of their main mandates is to make sure the banking system runs smoothly, that there's confidence in the banking segment. And there hasn't been a lot of confidence over the past couple of weeks. No, there hasn't. And on the flip side, there's also the goal of bringing down inflation. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's exactly why they've been working to slow the economy by raising interest rates. Right. So it's that fine balancing act. Right. But today, it's scream. The banking problem is screaming at them right now and screaming very loudly. Inflation. Yeah, inflation tomorrow, they're going to worry about tomorrow, but not today. I, th- I think that's a lesson out of this. Okay, so the Fed raises interest rates a quarter of a percent, pretty much in line with uh, the vast majority of expectations. So that brings the the overall, they call it the terminal rate, but basically how far they've raised the interest rates that they control up to four and three quarters to 5% Correct. now. Okay, keep in mind, uh, one year ago, it was only one year ago, that rate was about zero. Yeah, it's been I mean, fast. This is this yeah, moved quickly. This has been a lot in in one year. Now, what I also notice is the dot plot. And for people who don't follow this stuff, like you and I, there are 18 members of the Federal Reserve, and they post a little chart where there are 18 dots, and and they're anonymous. That's what every individual member of the Federal Reserve, what they put down is where they think interest rates will go, and there were no changes from the last dot plot in December. No, there weren't. And, and, you know, again, that that is anonymous. So it is anonymous, but that's good news, isn't it? It is. Yeah. yeah. 10 of 10 of 18. What I looked at and what I saw today is 10 of 18 uh, on, on from the Fed policymakers expect maybe one more yeah. increase yeah. before end of year. Yeah, that's exactly. what they're saying at this point. And then and then looking at rate cuts in 2024 and 2025. Yeah. And, and, and I want to talk about that a little bit because that's important. So bottom line, quarter uh, quarter percent rate increase today, probably one more rate increase, very likely next month. They're not going to wait real long on that, Mm -hmm. I don't think. I did notice something in the statement that was issued, and this is how closely people have to look at this sort of thing. The Federal Reserve said additional firming is appropriate. Um, Translating that, yeah, another rate increase, more rate increases. That is slightly different from what they said last month when they said, ongoing increases yes. are warranted. Yes. 
We've that, had entire segments I know. analyzing, looking at how different uh, grammar is important, English is yeah. important. They yeah. have actually stepping analyzed the word choices that that Chairman Powell uses, and, but, and you said it yourself. You, ongoing increase that has been used in every single Fed meeting since March of 2022. Yeah. Ongoing increase. They got rid of that this time. And and, and analysts, ec- economists, they're looking at that slight little change, and they're saying. Wow, the Fed's backing off. Yes. And I'm kind of with them on that because now they're talking about one more rate increase, not two or three or indefinite until they get inflation under control. That's good news. They, they, they leave a little bit of wiggle room. They always because, do. Yeah, they always know, because do. another word, uh, some words that they changed, instead of saying inflation has eased, they said inflation remains elevated. Yeah. So on the flip side of what you just said, I think that leaves the door open for another increase. But they have to acknowledge inflation just is like up the a little bit. bit spells yeah, you know, because inflation has been up a little bit more than than expected. So inflation is not gone. Banking crisis, I'm not going to say is averted, but they made they made a lot of effort today to say there's nothing to see here. The banking system is safe. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovec, along with Steve Ruby, and we're talking about today's announcement from the Federal Reserve, one quarter of 1% increase with likely only one more increase expected this year. So one thing I wanted to ask you, Steve, is the the market has been hoping, and I've heard a lot of people saying, when does this go the other way? When do rates start to decrease? And there's a good consensus expecting the Federal Reserve to actually begin reducing interest rates later this year, possibly as many as three times before the end of the year. I didn't see any of that today. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> that's what the markets are, are, are kind of pricing in. That's that's the information that I'm looking at yeah. anyways, is, yeah. is further, well, not further, but starting to decrease, whereas the dot plot, 10 of 18, whether they were hawkish or, or doves on the on the Federal Reserve Board, they all said that there's you know potential for another uh, increase, but that they were all in agreement today, yeah, about the 0.25. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're not going to start reducing interest rates this year, at least according to today's announcement. And that's different than what most market analysts are saying. So that's a little bit of a disappointment. Mm-hmm. But what I did call out of today's uh, announcement, and then. Uh, Chairman uh, Jerome Powell's comments afterwards is that the Federal Reserve is marking a reduction in the interest rate, terminal rate, which right now is around 5% or so, dropping that down to 3% by the end of 2025. So that tells me, okay, if they're not going to start reducing two or three times later this year, they're certainly going to be getting it to, to it next year. And that's good news for stock and in particular for bond bonds. markets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why bonds got crushed is what makes bonds go up and down significantly in value? Interest rate fluctuations. Exactly. What have we had in the past year? A Quite huge, a few interest rates. A fluctu- huge increase in interest rates. And, and it's like a teeter-totter. When interest rates go up, bond values drop. And if you're looking at your 401k and you're like most people where you've got a mix of stocks and bonds, yeah, you expect stocks to go down, but bonds usually hold their own, not last year. So what we're looking for is when does the Fed pivot? That's the word that that everybody uses and start reducing interest rates. Maybe we'll see if it's towards the end of this year. The Fed is holding off on making any announcements, but they're comfortable telling us certainly by next year reduction in interest rates. So that's good news with anybody that has money in bonds. So how does this affect banking? Uh, yeah, exactly. And that's what's been screaming at them is, okay, 
they because that's that's why they couldn't do that they, half need, a percent. they need to get confidence back in the banking industry and what they don't want to see and this happened in 2008 I, I mean we were worried about a total financial collapse of the financial system in this country in 2008 this and, is and not eight. 2008 though it, it's not but what, what was happening back then lehman brothers folded and there was something called a credit crunch and a credit crunch is where there's no money money can't move mm -hmm. and the federal reserve learned their lesson in 2008 and they want to avoid that at all costs and that's why they stepped in and they went into signature bank they went into uh, silicon valley bank and they insured all the uninsured deposits and they're doing everything in their power to get that confidence back because if there's no confidence in the banking system you're going to have some runs on banks and that's not what they want. And it's not really warranted. Really what I think we've seen lately is it, with the banking crisis is um, we've seen mismanagement of a number of banks come to the forefront because they're being stressed with the current credit environment. We, we had Chief Investment Officer Andy Stout yeah. uh, of Allworth Financial. He was on the show on Monday. And of course, this was a hot topic for, for what we discussed. Um, Fed has other tools to protect banks. Yeah. And, and that's exactly what they're doing right now. But the, the banks can borrow from the Fed and use their own bonds as collateral as, as a way to backstop their losses. Yeah. And that's what they're doing to free up some cash here. So there isn't this credit crunch that you speak of happened in 2008. Yeah. And, and, and that's important. I think that they restore confidence in the banking system. And I, I think today went a long way. You know, when, when the government says nothing to see here, the banking system is sound. I kind of grin, you know, because they, of course they're going to, I'm, I'm from the government. I'm here to help you. Yes. you. You know, that I've heard that more than a couple of times. You, you take that with a grain of salt. But I think in this case, they really are doing what's necessary to keep the banking system solvent and keep investor confidence, which is to me more important in the banking system. And that's why they addressed the banking system and didn't raise rates a half a percent because if they raised rates even higher than expected, why did these banks get in trouble? They took on-demand deposits, companies putting their money into the money market that they can pull out on with zero notice, they can pull out tomorrow. And the banks that got in trouble were taking that on-demand money that was deposited and buying long-term bonds. Yes. And if you have to cash out your investments to get that money back to depositors, when they say, hey, give me my money, uh, if you have to sell those bonds at a loss, which is gonna happen when interest rates go up, you got a problem. So the higher the Federal Reserve would have raised interest rates, the, the more, more stress that would have put on those banks. Mm -hmm. So I, I think today was a good compromise that, that they only raised rates a quarter of a percent, did not shock the markets. And for the banks that are in trouble, didn't make that trouble worse. I yeah. didn't think it eliminated the problem, but it certainly didn't exacerbate it. Yeah, that, that's the key. Yeah, I mean, some some people too are talking, if we're, we're talking about how this could infect the banking industry, some yeah. people are, are talking about potential for increase in regulations. Dodd-Frank is something that came from 2008. That was some of those regulations were rolled back in 2018. Yeah. Yeah. So I could see that happening in, in, in the near future, but who's to say what's, you know, Congress or Senate can get done. Yeah. Hey, and the best news that I heard today, um, the Fed is looking at 3.3% inflation by year end. Yes. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it? Okay. And they don't just come up with these numbers out of the blue. Here's the all worth advice. The Fed's decision to fight inflation might have a short-term impact on your portfolio, but always remember you're in it for the long-term and history does show growth over time. Coming up next, the costly financial mistake that thousands of people are going to make in the next couple of weeks and how you can avoid it. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC the talk station. 
You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovec along with Steve Ruby. If you can't listen to Simply Money every night, subscribe to get our daily podcast. You can listen the very next morning during your commute, at the gym, wherever you happen to be. And if you think you've got some friends that could use a little bit of our advice, tell them too. Just search Simply Money on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Straight ahead at 643, we're tackling 529 plans, index funds, and more on our Ask the Advisor segment. So, Ruby, I, I'm you know, businesses, they, they've got to think when they want to open up and, and put a plant or put a headquarters in a new city, one of the biggest things they look for is, you know, it, does it have good uh, does it have a good airport? Does, How's the airport? Can you yeah. get in and out of that place? Can we get executives and vendors in and out fairly uh, fairly quickly? And our own airport, CVG, just ranked second best regional airport, not in the country, in North America. I know, isn't that something? Incredible, yeah. It, it doesn't really feel like it when you're traveling sometimes. You don't know when you have it good, I feel like. Yeah. But good news came out. They are the second best regional currently. This is according to Skytrax Awards. It's based on survey data that evaluates traveler experiences in a bunch of different areas, including check-ins, arrivals, transfers, uh, shopping, security, immigration, all of nailed it across it. the board. Nailed it. And they nailed it. Yeah. Uh, this, this, the World Airport Awards, it began in 1999. So that's when Skytrax launched its its first global airport. Yeah, but you know what? Survey. We went backwards. We were number one a year ago. I know. What so happened? we're number two, but we try harder. Yeah, right? I guess so. Yeah. I, yeah. I actually saw just this morning that there, I don't know which side of the aisle you file, fall on for um, Skyline versus uh, Gold Star. Oh, Skyline. Well, they're they're getting rid of the gold star and they're replacing it with Skyline. So no maybe kidding. maybe they'll be number one again. <laughs> okay. Maybe, maybe maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's it. But you know, we take this stuff for granted. I I, I mean I, I'm always talking about how when you do any traveling, and not like I'm a world traveler, but I visit friends East Coast. I, I have a kid and grandkids in, in uh, Arizona. Um so I'm in and out of a, a few different airports and and mm-hmm. Where can you go where you can park your car long term, 10, 11 bucks a day, get a free shuttle waiting for you as you're as you're getting out of your car to take you immediately right over to the airport? I mean, you don't get that kind of stuff at other airports and it's pretty darn easy to get in and out of maybe maybe Houston. I guess the, yeah. the, that's what flips back and forth between one and two. Houston, yeah, Houston, Houston Cincinnati. Hobby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we're not in the category of, of Dallas, Fort Worth, Atlanta, O'Hare, JFK. This is regional, but still, I, I mean, that's pretty cool. It is. Yeah. I, I, I'm not shocked uh, and very happy that uh, we're getting a little bit more recognition here I, in I, Cincinnati. I do have to point yeah. out CVG yeah. ranked 46 best airport in the world. Out of all of them. Out of all of them. That's down cool. from 38 in 2022. So maybe yeah. the skyline flip will uh, sw- switch that over. All right. So so we're getting into tax time, and a lot of people are making contributions to their IRA before the April tax deadline. So we're talking about contributions for last year. You can make contributions for 2022 in your IRA right up until the April tax deadline. But you know what? There's something important you should know because a lot of people are making the contributions, but they're missing one important step. Yeah, a lot of folks that I've worked with, I've come across this over my career. That important step is if they don't make a decision with how that money is invested, yeah. it's going to sit in a deposit sweep. That's not a money market. That is a cash position that does not fluctuate. The The value stays at a dollar. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the interest rate really high, I imagine, on that, right? Yeah. About no. nothing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I met with someone that walked into the office. This is a couple of years ago. 
and they showed me a statement from a you know very well known mutual fund company, and I saw seventeen thousand dollars in an IRA in a money market. So seventeen thousand means they made at least two, probably three, yeah. maybe more contributions, and never invested the money. So over all of those years. That money has been basically sitting there earning almost zero. I mean, literally almost 0% interest. And from their perspective, I don't know. I put the money in an IRA. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? Exactly. Missing the step. What are they, What should you be doing? Well, first of all, I, I want to point out that Fidelity is it's one of the largest retirement account custodians. They actually estimated that about 40% of those with an IRA, 40%. some kind, 40, wow. 40, 40%, wow. don't take extra steps to actively invest their funds. Yeah. So the next step is, Actively investing yeah, your yeah, funds. Yeah. You have to choose something, work with a trusted advisor, whatever that might be. You do not Put want to something. sit in cash. If yeah. you're sitting in cash, inflation is going to eat those dollars alive. Uh, average 22 years, the value of the dollar gets about chopped in half. Okay. So, uh, well, I call that going broke safely. Yeah, we're in exactly. cash. We're, we're getting maybe in your money market, you're getting a half a percent, 1%. But if inflation is 3%, 6%, um, it's not buying as much. No, you no, know, no. You're, purchasing you're going power backwards. goes down fast. You're Very going fast. backwards, and that that's the key. So, you know, if it's a conscious decision, I don't want to invest the money right now. Okay, I guess I get that. Just remember to, you know, reevaluate every couple of months or so. But if you think I sent the check, that's all I'm supposed to do, right? No, it's not going where you may think it was going and you may not be earning anything and may not be doing what, what you expect. I'll tell you another one I found is this time of year, you get a lot of people that are making last minute contributions for last year's IRA and they forget or, or just don't bother to put what tax year goes on that check. So in other words, if you want to make a contribution in your IRA for 2022 up until tax filing time you have and don't to write anything, it. yeah, because they're going to credit it to this year most likely, right? Yeah, you have to specify it. If you yeah. don't, you can be shutting the door on additional contributions from, from the prior year. Uh, think about all the people that made this mistake during the pandemic too and the, the gains that they missed out on. If they just made that deposit, sat in cash, did nothing, whatever that might have been, lack of knowledge, analysis, paralysis, whatever it might yeah. be. Yeah, exactly. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovec, along with Steve Ruby, and we're talking about IRA contributions before tax filing deadline. So what are the limits that you can put into your IRA for 2022? For 2023, it's 6500 7500 for those over the age of okay. 50. For 2022, $500 less. Uh, okay, so we did get a bump up if you're making contributions for 2023. So keep in mind, everybody, if you're putting money into your IRA, not just put the money into your IRA, but make sure you go ahead and call that 800 number, call your advisor and get that money invested because otherwise it's going to just sit there in a money market earning next to nothing. Here's the all worth advice. Make sure you proactively choose how your IRA contribution will be invested. Otherwise, it sits in cash which could hurt you in the long run. Coming up next, Amy is joining us next to talk about the concerning trend of investors taking over the real estate market. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money brought to you by Allworth Financial. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. 
There's been so much talk in the real estate market over the past few years about multiple offers and how difficult it is if you're trying to buy a house to really get one. Well, what if you fell in love with the house, multiple offers, and one of those people doesn't really want to live in the home. They're investing in it so that they can rent it out to other people and make money. Yes, this is happening right here in Cincinnati. Joining us tonight to explain what's happening and how it could affect you, of course, our real estate expert, Michelle Sloan. You can catch her show right here on 55KRC every Sunday afternoon, Sloan Sells Homes, uh, owner of Remax Time. Michelle, I- I've talked to several people who have been in this place, right? They fall in love with the house. They're pre-approved, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with a bidding war. And and, uh, and it can be incredibly frustrating, but you're telling me you could be bidding against someone who has no interest in living in Villa Hills or Mason or Sycamore. Mm-hmm. You name you name the area. Uh, they're really just interested in, in investing in the home to make some money off of it. Yeah, big corporate investors are spending millions and millions of dollars. Some of these investors are not even in this country, but some of them are in California, and they realize the real estate market in Cincinnati is so affordable. Now, we Hmm. live in this bubble, so we may not think it's so affordable, but if you consider that the average home in Cincinnati is less than $300,000, the average home in California is over a million dollars, and so, you know, square footage for square footage, they're thinking, oh my gosh, these are this is like pennies on the dollar. And so investors are buying homes and scooping up homes. And they have been in this market for the last oh, three, four years for sure. Uh, but buying dozens of homes, there are a few investors from outside of the Ohio area and Kentucky and Indiana who are buying dozens and dozens of homes and then turning them into rentals. Mm. And so the face of our neighborhoods are definitely changing. And a lot of our people that would be buyers are being shut out because they are losing against these big corporations. So let's start there. What do buyers need to know about this? Because especially you think about, I don't know, first time home buyers, uh, you know, they've scraped together everything they possibly can for that down payment. And then you've got what you're, you're bidding against a, a cash buyer. Mm-hmm. It's tough, you know, and that's a conversation that I like to have with my sellers is like you have to understand there's a good possibility that you're going to have a family who wants to come live in this home. And in our contracts, it says, are you planning to live in the home or are you planning to use it as a rental? So that's the first thing. When we get our contract, we're going to look at that. Some sellers are like, I don't care who buys it as long Mm -hmm. as the cash is green and I can get it quickly and they're paying me a fair price. Mm -hmm. But then there are some sellers who are like, Michelle, if I get any offers from an institution or an investor who has no plans of living in this home and they're going to change the face of this neighborhood that I have loved and lived in for 20 years, I have no interest in that. I'd rather sell it to somebody who's going to live in it, have a family, you know, do the things that, you know, we would do in a home. So it's it's an interesting dilemma and you mm-hmm. don't know as a buyer what the seller is thinking. So 
it may, it really doesn't matter if it's a cash offer. Let's say the house is listed for three hundred thousand, mm-hmm. and the cash offer comes in at three hundred. But you, as a normal person, uh, normal, <laughs> a non institutional person, yeah, you plan to live in that home. You're going to occupy it. You come in at three oh five. Okay, I'm going to be pushing my seller to look at the 305, even though they need a mortgage, even though they want to go through the process of getting an appraisal and doing inspections and things like that. Because in the end, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, you're going to get $5,000 more. Yeah. And, you know, you may have to wait and we may have a couple of hoops to jump through. Maybe you'll have to do a little bit of um, a few repairs or something. But in the end, everybody wins. So there are a lot of um, investors now that are spending more than list price to get homes. But it's usually a formula for a lot of investors and companies that are buying homes. It's a formula. So they'll only pay an amount that they know that they can get back with interest, you know, with uh, and have have just some income based on that rental property. So it in for the investors, the mindset is completely different for buyers. Obviously the mindset is also very different because they're just looking for a place to live. And one other thing, Amy, this is the one thing that just absolutely makes me crazy right now in America, (laughs) we have a deficit of 4 million homes. We need Six million homes just to fulfill the need that we have of buyers right now. So that's that's what we're looking at for the next. I mean, we're not going to be able to to get past that for many years. Yeah. So we have this huge deficit, but we're not only competing against each other to buy these homes. Now we're competing against institutional investors. Correct. Absolutely. And it's thought that in the next couple of years, by 2030, uh, institutional investors will make up 40% of the U.S. family, wow. single family homes. So wow. that's a lot. And there's a lot of concern out there that these institutional investors, these companies, these corporations are going to be really, um, they're going to be helping the, tell the tale really and and making sure that they're forcing pricing and they're they're making sure that they can do what they need to do to make the money that they're planning to do so it's, it's not always good for just the general homeowner well and you talk about you mentioned i think this is a, a really powerful way to look at it kind of changing the face of our neighborhoods you know if i'm moving into a neighborhood or i've to your point lived here for 20 years and now we're moving because the kids have grown up here when I look around the neighborhood, I see where my kids used to ride their bikes and where they used to go to the park. And it's emotional, it, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. It, it, and you feel an investment in that community, whether you're staying in it or not. You sell that home to someone who lives in California or Timbuktu, name the place. They don't care. All they care about is making a profit. So it doesn't matter who moves into that house to them or if they cut the grass or if they keep it up. And I think Mm -hmm. this is so interesting because it's really, I think for most of us, when we think about real estate, we think about other people, not investors buying these homes. Exactly. Now it, it, it may, may be very, very nice people who could not afford that home otherwise. Yeah. You know, people who are renting, we're not putting people that need to rent for whatever reason down in, 
for any reason. But Not at all. You're right. Sometimes these institutional investors, uh, companies, they don't take care of a property and renters don't take care of a property as nicely as you would as an it's owner. yours yes you're paying the mortgage on that i think you i think a lot of people end up feeling a little bit differently about that i want to ask you michelle 10 years ago five years ago was this a thing you were seeing no not really it's it just started with the great recession mm. <laughs> so probably about 10 years ago that's when corporations realized, okay, there are, are extreme opportunities. Mm, there's money to be and made And so here. year after year after year, they've realized that this is an opportunity to make money. And it is changing the face of real estate. There's no question about it. And so we do need more homes to be built. And we need to think about who you if you're planning to sell who do you want to sell to is it all about the almighty dollar or is it about who's going to be living in that home eye opening michelle i think for a lot of people they probably hadn't heard about this or considered it before but according to that stats right 40% of single single family homes will soon be owned by corporations not individuals uh you know making decisions when we're buying and selling these homes about who we're, who we're selling to, um, you know, can make a huge difference. Thank you to Michelle Sloan, our real estate expert, as always, with such great insight. You can listen to her every Sunday here on 55KRC. You can find her at Remax Time. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovac, along with Steve Ruby. Straight ahead, the eternal question, can money buy happiness? We have some new information on that age-old question. So if you've got a financial question you'd like for us to answer, there's a red button you can click while you're listening to the show on the iHeart app. Just record your question. It, it does come straight to us, and uh, we do listen to that. Might even put you on the air. Um, right now, we're going to go to the Ask the Advisor. Our first question comes from Ronnie and Meredith in Milford. And Steve, Ronnie and Meredith say they've got a 529 plan set up for their son, with about $75,000 in it. So good good for them. They put a lot away oh, yeah. for uh, for uh, their kid to go to college, except he might not end up going to college. What can they do with that money? They want to know, has it been wasted? Oh, there are so many options. First, good job. Obviously, setting aside yeah. $75,000 yeah. for college is a big deal. Uh, don't worry. They're, first of all, it's transferable. A 529, it's easy enough to change the beneficiary on that, meaning if there's a, a The parents sibling, control it. Yeah, they do. They yeah. do. So a sibling, a niece, a nephew, a grandchild, even yourself, you can transfer that to yourself and use it for qualified educational expenses. Yeah, not taxable. Yeah, not taxable. Yeah. The, the tax-free gains is one of the main benefits of the 529, and you don't have to lose it. There's a couple of other things you can do. Those dollars, they, they don't have to go towards a four-year university. Right. You can use them for two-year community college, trade school, technical, vocational school, certificate program, apprenticeship. The list goes on and on. And then there's changes to Secure Act 2.0. Um, that's kind of neat. And, and they're still working out details on it, but you can transfer up to $35,000 into a Roth IRA in your kid's name. There, there are strings attached to it. 
Don't just do it. Talk to a tax advisor on that one because it is a little complicated, but it's an option. So the bottom line is, no, you did not waste it. If you want to make sure the kid gets the money, you can still use it for other purposes. If you say, hey, we did that for college and we're not happy with you, we're going to give it to your sister or our niece, or we're just going to keep the money because I might go to grad school or I might decide to learn how to weld. Those are all things that you can do with I a heard, 529. I heard plan. a story once of yeah. somebody that used it to take uh, golf lessons on a cruise ship. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to a tax advisor about that yeah, one. Yeah, I'm not, it's not sure not my recommendation, but I've heard of that. Funny. I know. All, right. All right. GR in Wyoming says his brother lives out of state and he and his brother both have the same Medigap plan, but his costs less than, than mine. How can this be? Two identical Medigap plans One's paying more than the other. What's up with that? A couple of simple answers. First is, you know, it's standardized plans, but depending on cost of living in the state you live in, they will be they have different costs. Yeah, different yeah. costs, different costs of living. Uh, several states, they also use something called a community rating system, which means that there's no difference in premium between whether or not you're male, female, whatever age bracket you're in. Yeah. They create a level premium across the board, which does drive up that price for everyone else. Sorry, GR. Find find something else to worry about. Different people pay different rates for the same plan in, in different states. All right, Joe, over in Edgewood, I like this question because it brings up some interesting points. How many individual stocks is too many before you should just buy an index fund? Joe's advisor keeps wanting to add more individual stocks with their IRA contributions uh, and some of the money that they're rolling over from their CD ladder. Yeah. So they're going from CDs into individual stocks. When should you get away from individual stocks and buy an index fund? I mean, there are so many different thought processes on this. The, yeah. the CFA Institute, I mean, if you have a large cap portfolio, they say, I've seen different numbers. They say 15 stocks for a small cap portfolio, 26 stocks. All world 30. I ask why. That's where I'm at on this. Yeah. yeah. Why, why is he putting you in individual stocks? Is he earning commissions? Yeah, in which case I've got a, I've got a little issue with that. We like, we like fee-based planning. Okay. Exactly. Is he making money every time you're buying and selling? That's my question. I, I guess I would also want to ask if one of those companies goes bust, if you've got the proverbial Enron in there, is it going to matter? Is it going to be a big deal to you? Probably. It will yeah, be. You know? Yeah. All, all you need is one stinker. So I'm not a big fan of individual stocks, especially with, you know, IRAs and long-term money. Index funds are boring, but there's a reason they're popular. Yeah. Why try to beat the market when you can put it in an index fund? It's low cost. It, it, it keeps up with the market. Exactly. Okay. Quickly, uh, Stephen Cleves wants to know, what do I need to consider when deciding whether to take Social Security early or wait until I'm 70? Is Stephen Cleve still working? If he's still working, then yeah. he probably doesn't need to take it. You don't want to pay taxes on it if you're earning too much money. Uh, cash flow needs, life expectancy. There's a break-even point eventually that happens in your late 70s. Uh, if you collect later on in life versus early. And, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of getting the, as much back as you possibly can from Social Security. So if you don't yeah. need them, if you don't need the money, you probably want to defer it. Yeah, you, you might want to defer it and get a bigger chunk of money. At, you know, at, the longer you wait, the more you get. Um, but I think the question is appropriate. Are you retired, retired? Because if you're under full retirement age and go back to work, anything over about 21000 a year is, is going to hurt you. They're going to reduce your, your benefit. Coming up next, a new look at whether money can buy happiness. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Steve Ruby. You know, it's a question 
Ruby, that, that's been debated for years. Can money buy happiness? And there's a, believe it or not, there's a study out there where they scientifically look at this question. A couple, couple of studies, actually. Nobel Prize winners, uh, Daniel Kenneman and Matthew Killingsworth of the University of Pennsylvania, they re-examined an old study that they themselves did on the issue and concluded with no surprise Generally, more money means happier people. Yeah, imagine that. I know, right? Uh, Who yeah. would have thought? That, yeah. That's the easiest study in the world. You, you know, but not. I've seen people that are very well off, and they're miserable. It's going to be outliers, of and, course. And there's uh, there's uh, the number actually works out to about twenty percent of people. I don't care what you do for them, they're not happy. I mean, it could be you know clinical depression or something like that, or you know loss in the family. But mm -hmm. you know, some people are never going to be happy. But for the other eighty percent. Yeah, you have more money, you have less worries, you're happier. Yeah, th those that disagree with it have never been broke, is yeah. what I would say, because yeah. money can make some of your problems go away. But, you know, I, my question is, is this a chicken and the egg situation? Do people with a good attitude, happier people, are they more successful in life? And they really didn't get into that. No, they didn't. They didn't. Yeah. The, the, the participants in this study, it was self-reported. But what we can say is that the the figures rose in a straight line with their income with, without stopping at any particular income yeah. threshold either. Yeah. So the the happiest thirty percent were those that earned more than one hundred thousand dollars per year, and yeah. it was a straight line. But people Happiness that earned two hundred thousand were twice as happy. Three hundred thousand. Yeah. Three times as happy. The, the old study was $75,000 was the magic number that you needed that right? to earn. Yeah, anything okay. above that was just extra money. Yeah. The amendment here, of course, to this study is more money means more happiness. Shocker. Those, I know. I, Shocker. I, I can't believe it. But, but you know, there, there's still, and, and I, I have a relative that's like this, as soon as I get that new dream car, I, and I'm, I'm going to be happy. Life is going to be good. And you know what? I, I found people that look for material things like that. It mm -hmm. doesn't matter because there's always something else you can buy. That's true. But when you get away from financial worries, that, you know, for most people, that's where the arguments come from in a family. Yeah, financial worries, I think, is the key here. You bring up a good point because if, if you can't afford to pay your bills and you have yeah. credit card interest piling up, that stuff's not going to happen if you're making more than, you know, $200,000 a year, hopefully. I mean, there are like people with lifestyle creep that live above their, above their means, and these are some of the people that are probably outliers here. Yeah, the overall takeaway is that, unlike the old adage says, people generally do become happier as they make more money, and the happiest people tend to enjoy life as they climb the income ladder more than the average person, you and me. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening. Tune in tomorrow. We're going to talk about overconfidence and how it can cost you thousands. You've been listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial on 55KRC, the talk station.